HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Brooklyn on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're going to be discuss, we are going to be discussing the perception of healthy food, unpacking questions like what types of food dietitians consider to be healthy versus what the general public believes. Where is there alignment between these two concepts and disagreement, even within the dietetic community? And what is the role of both industry and government in helping consumers navigate the food landscape? But before we get into this awesome conversation, Taylor Lanzette, my associate producer, is in the studio with me today to run through some of the biggest food policy stories from the past week. Hi, Taylor. Hey, Jenna. What's up? You know, just some farm income woes. Some, in, some <laughs> farmer income woes? Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, so today, Do tell. <laughs> today, the Secretary of Ag, Tom Vilsack, is reporting on the state of the farm economy with, Senate, uh, with the Senate Ag Committee. Um, And so most of the conversation will really be about how low farm incomes have been across the nation with projections that they will remain low over the next couple years. This is this is crazy to me because I thought that it was just recently reported that in the past five years, farm income has been the highest on record. Is that right? Right. And that's the confusing part. So Pat Westoff of the Food and Ag Policy Research Institute says there's lots of debate over how much the farm economy is truly broken and how much is just adjusting after the recession. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think the key thing to understand, especially for our listeners, is that when we talk, talk about farm incomes, we are predominantly talking about corn and soybean growers. Um, and it's expected that the U.S. farmers will harvest the largest U.S. corn and soybean crop in history, which will, price, p- pr- which will push prices even lower. 
I, I yes, the basic laws of supply and demand. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Econ professor over here. <laughs> um, so the EPA has released a... Moving, moving on. Moving on. <laughs> Econ, not our strong suit. <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, the EPA released a 227-page issue paper after lots of analysis that argues that glyphosate does not cause cancer. And so just as a reminder to everyone, glyphosate is the most commonly used weed killer in the world and is produced by none other than Monsanto. Um, so a couple things on this. Like the first thing that I want to remind everybody is that this is specifically an issue paper that was released mm-hmm. in advance of a, of a meeting um, of the Scientific Advisory Committee. So it's not the EPA's final determination. The agency is going to wait until the committee reviews everything, all the, you know, the entire evaluation, the interpretation of the data for each line of evidence um, and before it makes its like final conclusion. And, and that is expected to come out in two 2017, which is it's a timeline that's been pushed back yet again. Right. So this, like overall, was a bit of a plot twist, and I was actually kind of hoping they would come out on the other side for the sake of the precautionary principle. But as we remember earlier this year, the European Food Safety Authority ruled similarly that glyphosate was unlikely to pose um, a cancer risk to humans, and they ended up extending the license for glyphos- glyphosate for 18 months um, in the EU. But, like, on the other hand, the EPA's preliminary conclusion is actually at odds with what the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which um, is the World Health Organization's specialized cancer agency, mm-hmm. has said. So in March 2015, the IARC rated glyphosate as, pro- quote, probably carcinogenic to humans, <laughs> which, in, which is actually an official designation, um, which in turn sparked this kind of global reexamination of the herbicide so i i have to just say this like the conspiracy theorist in me it <laughs> uh, doesn't come out very often but but i really? um I, know, I know not not like that often but i was like couldn't help but wonder about the delay like this this determination and the delay of the final determination um with the like the timed um, purpose was it was it purposefully timed with a Bayer Monsanto merger that was just released mm. last week. Okay, I was that took that was like a mouthful for me to get out for some reason. <laughs> well, but. we'll just have to wait until 2017 to see what happens. Yeah, yeah. The if suspense it, is probably killing all of our listeners. Everybody, <laughs> what is going to happen? Well, don't worry, we will keep you posted. Yeah, but it is. I mean, there is a lot of disagreement, yeah. right? So, so it would be interesting to see kind of what their final determination will be. Yeah. Um, so, in exciting news, this week France passed a law banning all disposable plastic cups and plates. This is part of their Energy Transition for Green Growth Act, and this law requires will require that all disposable tableware should be made from 50% biologically sourced materials that can be composted at home by 2020. And then by 2025, it'll be expected that it's covered 60% um, materials are biologically sourced. Vive la France! <laughs> I don't know. I think I was really excited about this. I think it's <laughs> it's good to see kind of this wide sweeping um, like po- like change and, and it's a policy and it really uh, speaks to like changing or shifting the default to a more sustainable option, which obviously can have super positive environmental repercussions. So I'm I'm pretty excited about it. I think that the packaging industry probably not very excited about it and um they in fact the are asking 
the EU Commission to take legal action against France, <laughs> as they say it violates um, the EU law and the free movement of goods. So um, we shall see. But Taylor, yeah. what was your reaction when you, when you read I this? I thought it was awesome. I mean, you know, one, it gives industry a few years to figure it out. So mm-hmm. it's not like this starts tomorrow. Um, and with the packaging industry, they're so behind the times. And yeah. there would be no reason for them to invest in sort of more expensive and sort of innovative materials when they can produce things so cheaply. So I would love to see other countries um, follow, suit. follow suit. Yeah. Yeah. All Let's right. get packaging, you know. Let's get packaging. <laughs> Totes. Big packaging. Totes. <laughs> um, okay, last up, election gossip. Like, oh, I love it. <laughs> love it. Let's hear it. Um, so and just a general note, um, as we're, you know, we're going to be coming up um, on the election, and we're going to include a lot more sort of updates as it relates to food. Mm-hmm. Um, and so first up this week, Martha Stewart has publicly endorsed our girl, Hill. I love her. <laughs> I don't think she ever forgave Trump when he tried to call her out on creating a uh, her own Apprentice spinoff <laughs> show, personally. Yes. that's I'm sure that's part of it. And then, of course, who wouldn't want to vote for one of the most qualified presidential candidates in history true 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 um there was there was okay so other food like trump food related trump news um there was reporting that forrest lucas who is um an oil industry executive co-founder of lucas oil and outspoken anti anti animal welfare advocate um is on trump's shortlist for interior secretary <laughs> The irony. The, oh, the irony. Do you want to remind everybody um, what the so, Interior Secretary oh, does? Yeah. yeah. The Interior Department oversees national parks, wildlife, um, sort of refugees, offshore drilling projects, fracking regulations. I mean, it's really exciting that all of this will be led by an oil exec. Yeah, it's terrifying. <laughs> it's terrifying. Yeah. It's, I mean, the possibilities just get worse. It's just so, it's, yeah, it's. That's also hysterical. <laughs> uh, so, um, in other news, Trump appeared on the Dr. Oz show last Thursday and was pretty much unable to answer a question from an audience member who was a teacher and was asking how he would handle the obesity problem, especially as it relates to children. Yeah, his response, if you read it, was completely unintelligible. And of course, uh, most of his answer to this question referenced the fact that he played sports in high school, so it wasn't really an issue <laughs> for him. Which is good to know. Great to know. Great to know. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I get on some level that the complexities of our food system challenges might not keep the candidates up at night. But for, you know, for one thing, like as hawkish as Trump claims to be, you'd think that he would have a coherent response to this question, seeing that some of our most respected military, um, senior military leaders have repeatedly stated that obesity is one of the biggest threats to our national security, since 27% of all young adults are too heavy to serve in the military at this point. Wow. Yeah. Also, I just, because you brought up national security. Yeah. Um, Donald Trump Jr. took to Twitter on Monday to publish a graphic, <laughs> published a graphic, graphic that likened Syrian refugees to Skittles. The graphic questioned... If I had a bowl of Skittles and I had to- and I told you just three would kill you, would you take a handful? Yeah, I just uh, what? I inappropriate and also like yeah. Yeah. I, th- I feel like Trump Jr. probably thought that this was like the analogy of the year. Like, can you just see him being so proud of this particular <laughs> like analogy? Like, like I got it. Now everyone's gonna understand why we need whatever. <laughs> it was it was pretty bad. So um, that 
That sucked. Um, thanks, Trump. And then I guess for our last, the last thing for our like dump session, our Trump dump session. And my personal favorite from this week was that um, he announced that he uh, would, and I quote, eliminate all needless and job killing regulations in federal government, including the FDA food police, which was also a quote, the FDA food police. I don't right. think that's our official title, but maybe it <laughs> no, would I be think, if, yeah. <laughs> if um, he was our our president. I mean, it's good. It's a, you know, it's a strong policy because who would want their food to be safe? No. Deadly pathogens for everybody. <laughs> Here we go. Okay. All right. That wraps it up uh, for our new segment today. If you have thoughts on the stories we discussed or um, some suggestions, things you want us to include for next week, you can email us at eatingmatters at heritageradionetwork.org or find us on Twitter at EatMattersHRN. break is brought to you by Taxstar, and this one's called Relax, It's Just the End of the World. that that title of that song we just listened to during the break might be kind of appropriate for our current political situation. (laughs) (laughs) It's just potentially the end. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now we're going to turn to our feature story today about the New York Times article that came out this past summer on the perception of healthy food. Joining me on the line to discuss the research and findings that went into this piece is author Margot Sanger-Katz. Margot is a healthcare correspondent writing for the Upshot section at the New York Times. We also have Ashley Letterer on the line with us as well to, to discuss her experience as a dietitian working on these issues. Ashley is the founder of Thoughtful Food Nutrition, which is a nutrition consultancy, and she's also an adjunct uh, lecturer at Culinary Institute of America. Um, Ashley and I, fun fact, also worked closely together on a variety of healthy food programs and policies many moons ago during our time with the Bloomberg administration. Ashley and Margot, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. All right. Hello, thank you for having me on. Ah, so excited. Um, Margo, I'm gonna, let's kick it off with you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the story in general and, and why, what made you decide to want to write this story? Sure. So I am a healthcare reporter, and a lot of what I write about is Obamacare and health insurance and things like that. But I've recently gotten really interested in food and obesity policy and trying to find out whether the various ideas that uh, politicians and advocates talk about to try to improve public health, you know, really might work. And so this led me to try to learn a little bit more about nutrition, because if we want to do policy to try to get people to um, eat diets that are going to be more helpful for them, I wanted to know, you know, how much do we know about uh, what those diets are? And the thing that really struck me when I talked to a lot of experts is that there's you know, there's definitely some consensus about what's healthy, and there's uh, more science than there was, say, 40 or 50 years ago, where we knew very little. But there's still, like, a lot of disagreement and a lot of uncertainty. And, you know, 
the more I read about this stuff, the more I felt like just as a person in the world trying to figure out what to eat, that I wasn't sure what was healthy or not. Yeah. Um, so what we decided to do is basically do two large surveys. One survey, we just did like a regular poll like we might do to try to find out who people were going to vote for for president, where we went out to 2,000 registered voters in the United States, and we asked them about a a large group of foods, about 50 individual foods. Mm -hmm. Do you think this food is healthy or not? Just to get a sense of like, you know, what normal Americans think about uh, food. And then what we did is we took the same set of foods and the same set of questions, and we shared them with a large group of professional nutritionists and asked them, again, to sort of rank all these foods, is this healthy, is it not? Mm -hmm. And so the results were we kind of got this chart that shows us, uh, you know, what foods ordinary Americans think are healthy and what foods nutrition experts think are healthy. And, you know, as you might imagine, there are a lot of places where nutritionists and ordinary Americans agree. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are some foods that everyone thinks are healthy, um, and there are some that everyone agrees are unhealthy, but there also are um, a fair number of foods that there is disagreement in both groups about whether they are healthful or not. And then there are some foods where the nutritionists and the ordinary Americans disagree, where it seems like people may be mistaken about what the state of nutrition science is. So, so I thought all of those findings were kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I can't wait to unpack those. Um, but first, how, how were you um, defining healthy in your survey? Did you offer a definition, or is it just... Um We actually thought about this, and we deliberately kept it really vague because I feel like for me, myself, and I think for a lot of New York Times readers, uh, they just want to eat in a way that's going to make them healthy. It's going to help them have a long life, avoid uh, diseases that are associated with poor diet, and just be kind of generally healthy. You know, there are, of course, many people in the United States who are looking for diets that are going to help them lose weight, but that's not really, for a lot of people, the diet they're going to eat for their whole life. So the question, it was a very simple question for each of these foods we just asked, do you think this food is healthy or unhealthy? Yeah, it sounds kind of just like foods that would generally make you feel good. Like as a, <laughs> right. you know, like yeah. what just Do doesn't you... make you feel bad at the end yeah. of the night. <laughs> yeah. um, how, how did you decide uh, which foods to include? So it's sort of a combination of different strategies. Um, we did talk to some experts. I have a colleague who uh, writes a column for us who's a pediatrician and writes a lot about nutrition named Aaron Carroll. And I went to him and I said, like, what are some foods that I should include on this? I did look at some of the recent nutrition literature and some of the places where there are fights, and I knew I wanted to include certain kinds of foods because they are controversial. Um, I also wanted to include a lot of just kind of basic foods that are kind of staples of the American diet. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing we did is uh, me and my co-author, Kevin Qualey, went to Google and we asked, uh, you know, if you type in the phrase, is blank healthy, what are the things that the foods that come up the most often? Because we felt like the ones that Americans are asking about the most often, it might be the most helpful for our readers to know what nutritionists think about those foods. So this is sort of an unscientific list. We had to limit it to about 50 foods because we wanted people to actually complete the survey and not have it be burdensome for them. Uh, So it's some combination of just, you know, foods that we thought were interesting, foods that people are asking about, uh, and foods that experts thought might be revealing. And, you know, we tried to pick foods across a lot of different kinds of food groups. So we have kind of yeah. meat and dairy. We have fruits and vegetables. We have some processed foods. We have some drinks. Uh, mm-hmm. We have some desserts. Uh, we have some alcoholic beverages. Going to go home and Google, is wine healthy? Yeah, that's on the list. <laughs> that is on the list. Don't think that I haven't Googled that before. 
Uh-huh. Um, so can you give us, Margot um, and Ashley, I promise we're going to bring you into the conversation in, in um, just one minute. But I want to first ask you, Margot, what, what were some of the common items that the public thought were healthier than the dietitians actually found them to be? So the, the places where there's kind of the biggest gap, uh, we, we in the office, we call it the granola gap. So uh, we asked about both granola bars and just granola cereal. And, and in both cases, there's just a very large gap. Uh, regular people think that granola and granola bars are a lot healthier than professional nutritionists. Uh, some of the other foods where we saw a big gap, um, ordinary Americans seem to like orange juice better than nutritionists. They like mm-hmm. coconut oil more than nutritionists. Yeah. They like frozen yogurt more than nutritionists. Uh, we asked about a slim fast shake. That was another one that ordinary Americans think are more healthy. And then uh, we can also talk about, but there are some foods uh, where there's disagreement on the other side where uh, nutritionists think that they are healthier than uh, ordinary people think. What are some of those? So some of those are uh, quinoa, mm-hmm. hummus tofu, sushi, and wine. So these are, these are foods that nutritionists are like, no, we, we pretty much think these are, quote unquote, these are healthy, and the, the general public just like, doesn't think they're healthy or doesn't really think of them, think to eat them, maybe. Yeah, so it's some combination. Uh, the general public just thinks they're less healthy, and they also, uh, for some of these foods, like a larger proportion of people just said, I don't know when we asked our question. Right. So, you know, one of the lessons that we found is that some of the foods that people who are like really, you know, foodies and, and people who are really paying attention to this stuff, foods like quinoa that, you know, are talked about as a superfood so often that it's actually kind of made fun of for being this uh, stereotypical. Yeah. Superfood. I just think a lot of ordinary Americans, like they just may not have seen it in their grocery store. They may not have been to a restaurant where it's been served. So when you ask them, is this like weird sounding food healthy or not? They, they just know, yeah. kind of throw up their hands and say, I don't know. Yeah. So there's like a, a knowledge gap there. Um, so Ashley, from your perspective, so, um, you know, especially specifically working with individual clients, do you think that the results from this um, study, like, do they kind of reflect your experience um, working with your clients on an individual basis, like their questions that you get every day? Absolutely. And I do think it underscores that there is a lot of confusion out there. Mm-hmm. And I think the quinoa is a perfect example of it's kind of this buzzword that you hear a lot about, but people aren't really quite sure what it is. Um, it's not spelled the way that it sounds. Like yeah. there's a lot of confusion around that. Yeah. Definitely. What are some of the other kind of common types of foods that your clients have asked you about or, or that you have, have questions about? Butter is definitely up there. There's still a lot of confusion around butter. Um, can I eat it? When can I eat it? Can I use it to cook? Yeah. Um, nuts and nut butters. I think these are sort of perennial things that people are confused about because nuts are very nutrient-dense, but they're also very energy-dense. And so they're something that people... They're a very healthy item, but they have to be consumed in moderation. Right. Um, also, I think sort of beyond the specific food, people are very confused about carbohydrates and how to incorporate them into their diet. And so I think it was interesting to see bread on here and, again, um, some of the other items where it's like, can I have that in general is, is a very big question that people are confused about. Um, so what, I mean, um, well, I'm going to ask you both this, but Margot, can you start us off anything in particular when collecting these results that you were really surprised by in any of the categories that you collected? Well, I think 
And, you know, in retrospect, it's not that surprising, but at the time, I was really surprised about kind of foods containing saturated fat. So we asked about uh, pork steak, whole milk, cheddar cheese, and, and, and butter. Uh, and those are all foods where basically we see um, it's not that there's a disagreement between nutritionists and uh, the public, but it's that within each group, there is a lot of disagreement. So for all of those foods, you kind of get about half of people saying that they're healthy and half of them saying that they're unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And that's true of ordinary Americans. It's also true of our nutritionists. And I think, you know, like that's the place where I do think that like there's been a lot of changing in our thinking about these foods and, they're in, and there's not a lot of clarity about what role they should play in our diet. So that was a little bit surprising to me. Um, I also, I, you know, I was a little bit surprised to see diet soda rank so low. So both groups said that diet soda, only 20% of nutritionists and only about 20% of ordinary Americans describe diet soda as being a healthy food. Uh, it's, it's actually very close on our chart to regular soda, which uh, is sort of the biggest loser here, sort of the least healthy thing as ranked by both groups. And, you know, based on what I understand about the science around diet soda, I would, I, I would have thought it sort of was a more neutral thing. Right. Um, And Ashley, what are your thoughts on saturated fats? Yeah, like what is your representative, putting your dietetic, you know, you're like representing the nutrition community. Where where do you kind of weigh in on the whole sat fat (laughs) uh, situation? So I think that is a great question. And I think right now, um, especially right, interesting seeing coconut oil so high on the list by the public, but not so much by the dietetic community. Um, the the research is uh, emerging, and I, I love that, Margo, you included the quote from uh, Dr. Mozafarian and really sort of tackling this and saying that nutrition is still an emerging science, and we have this foundational research, but still there's a lot more research to be done. And there is emerging research that says that some of the saturated fatty acids are potentially not as unhealthy as some of the others. And so I think what we can go on and what I advise my clients is that we go by the um, Dietary Guidelines for Americans and what sort of our broader research has shown us. And then everything, I think, in moderation and that the steak is okay in moderation, for example. So how do you, like, guide more on moderation? Is it, do you often find, you know, you're talking to your clients about specific foods, um, or do you really take the, like, everything in moderation approach? I think everything in moderation approach. I'm big on having people be mindful about the choices that they're making and not so much on counting calories or thinking of counting saturated fat grams, but thinking about the whole diet in particular. And I think that's why this study is so interesting. And I think that part of these results reflect that. Mm -hmm. Um, A granola bar, for example, or granola, even better example, that in moderation and the right granola, um, (laughs) I would have rated much higher as a nutritionist. That's something I disagree with. But there are so many different kinds of granola out there, and some are very sugary, very, I would say, yes, is a dessert. But there are some on the opposite end of the spectrum that are basically oats, a little bit of dried fruit, and some nuts that I think still can be caloric, but with the right quantity, and they're very flavorful, that's enough, and that's a healthy choice picked with your protein, say your plain Greek yogurt in the morning. 
Um, yeah. I, well, I wanted to kind of circle back to this, um, something you said, Margo, about diet soda, which I am totally fascinated by. Um, and, like, Ashley, what are your thoughts on diet soda? Because I know a lot of the work that, um, say, you have done professionally when you were with the health department um, was around kind of getting people to drink less sugary sweetened beverages, but didn't talk as much about diet soda. So I'm curious, you know, your thoughts on kind of where you weigh in on this whole, you know, yeah, diet situation. So that's a great question. And I also thought, I agree with Margot that I found that finding really interesting. I was really surprised that the public rated diet soda so low on the, the healthy mark. Um, and I think that, uh, again, kind of going back to thinking about where this all fits into a healthy diet, the gold standard is whole foods and less processed foods. So I was really pleased to see avocado and kale and egg and chicken at the high end of the list for both groups. Like, okay, we're in a good, we're in a good place. Whole mm-hmm. foods, fruits and vegetables, whole grains, healthy fats, um, and then seeing diet soda at the other end. I think that's kind of where it belongs in the context of a larger diet. But when we're thinking about the individual, um, if they are solely looking to lose weight, that is their main goal. They drink five sodas a day, maybe a stepwise reduction in the sodas. If that's what helps them, it's a step to the diet soda and then eventually um, no soda, that would be my goal for any client. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, we're going to take a quick commercial break right now to hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, we're going to dig deeper into the role of um, both government and industry in helping consumers navigate our confusing food landscape. Stay tuned. for this commercial break is brought to you by Taxstar, and this track is called Walking Like a Cowboy. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. eating matters. 
Matters, where today we're speaking with Ashley Letterer, founder of Thoughtful Food Nutrition, and Margot Sanger-Katz, New York Times healthcare correspondent, about the perception of healthy food. Uh, before the break, Ashley, you kind of started to uh, tell us a little bit about some of the basic advice you give to your clients um, uh, in how, you know, how to sort of navigate this nutritional landscape and, and figure out what is healthy and, and, and what to eat. And you talked a little bit about less, eating less processed foods and more whole foods. Uh, I'm wondering if you, A, have any additions to this kind of um, your, like, overview advice to clients and B, if you can break down a little bit what you mean by less processed foods. Sure. So as I mentioned, I think um, most people would agree that we try to steer people to eating more whole foods, which means eating eating um, the apple, eating these sort of fresh cooked foods instead of pulling things out of a box or a rice mix out of a box that's loaded with sodium or anything um, in a crinkly package, try to stay away from that. And I think that might also be why maybe granola bars, for example, that was also a really interesting finding kind of landed because granola bars are a processed food. And I think for some people, some granola bars, some certain granola bars, because, again, they can really go on the spectrum of being very high in added sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they're a processed food, I think for some um, that would be a negative so, um, so processed food meaning just anything that has a lot of that's you know been packaged and anything that has added sugar and salt. Um, anything and in a crinkly that, package, you know, for example, <laughs> like white rice is even a processed food. Yeah, but would, everything has been stripped away. So yes, go ahead. What would but would white would rice, for instance, would that be an example of like a minimally processed food versus a highly processed food like potato chips? So that's a good question, and I think that depends on the person that you're asking and the perception. I mean, some people would say applesauce is a processed food because it's been processed from the whole food. And so, again, I think that that's a great question, that there's confusion because so many things are kind of on this spectrum of where is, where is it acceptable to kind of draw the line. Right. M- Margo, is that something that you encountered in um, this study? I just encounter in my life. And again, I think it's part of the for wanting to do this study is, you know, like sometimes you're in a hurry, you need a snack and you want to know what to eat. And, you know, so I mean, I do think that this is a real challenge for a lot of people. And, you know, even as you look at the things that everyone agrees are healthy, a lot of them are like not real convenience foods, you know, like, you know, I think we can all agree that um, spinach is probably pretty healthy for you. But like, if you're in a hurry, spinach like maybe isn't the most practical food. Right. Yeah. And like, you know, I think like part of why like granola bars are interesting to me is because I think that they reflect people feeling like, okay, like I need something on this processed food spectrum, right? Like I, at the convenience store, I'm starving. I yeah. need something right now. I could buy a candy bar. I could buy a bag of potato chips. Like the granola bar kind of has this like veneer of healthfulness on it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the marketing um, is fantastic. The marketing right? is so it's like everything like packed you that into it's a bar. So yeah. I think people are basically getting this message like, okay, if I'm in this situation, maybe I know that a processed food is not as healthy as spinach or an apple, but, you know, I got to pick something. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the granola bar seems like it's sort of winning out much more so than nutritionists really think it should be when compared to other kinds of foods. It also speaks to the availability of these, these whole foods, right? Because at a convenience store, we have lots of options ranging from candy to granola bars and chips, but we have very, very few few options where there's like 
apples, you know, or bananas or, or, or like or, apple slices to go yeah. or even maybe that should be our food business <laughs> that we eventually create apple slices to go. It's never been done before. Never. <laughs> um, okay. So Ashley, um, you, as I have mentioned before, have experience providing nutritional guidance, guidance to both clients on an individual basis and also to groups on mass. So I'm thinking specifically of your experience at the New York city health department, developing and implementing the fabulous New York City Agency Food Standards, which for those of you who don't know, um, are a set of nutritional guidelines applied to all meals and snacks purchased and served at New York City agencies, which uh, account for about 260 million meals, million meals annually. Um, In your experience, is there a difference between the type of nutritional advice you give to individuals versus the guidance that went into developing these city procurement standards? No, not at all. And I think if you, so the procurement standards are a little bit lengthy, but to sum them (laughs) up, they really are a helpful framework for being able to provide a healthy diet. And within them are the same advice that I would give anyone, including myself, which is to eat fruits and vegetables with every meal, don't eat fried foods. Um, If we are purchasing processed foods, which of course we do, that's an excellent point that more and more the gold standard you know, is to cook your own food or, or buy something that's as close to homemade as possible, and that is less and less feasible or the case for many, many people. So what's the next best thing? We're, we're shopping in the grocery store or shopping in a convenience store. How do I know which granola bar to pick? And the standards help provide a helpful guide in that situation to know, okay, this cereal has much sugar in it. This granola bar has too much sugar in it, so I should buy, you know, I should keep comparing products until I find something that's not, um, that fits within my goal. And I think one of the things that were helpful about the standards is really highlighted, for example, that sodium is, is very high in a lot of packaged products, including cereal, so helping to guide people to products that are a little bit healthier. What are beyond the food standards? What are some other um, policy interventions that you have come across that can kind of nudge consumers in the direction of making more healthful choices? I'm really excited about the new nutrition facts label. I think that um, even just drawing attention to that, Mm -hmm. that some people there's a lot of disagreement and some grumbling, of course, because certain advocates wanted something that didn't, you know, become on the new label or, you know, a lot of quibbling about little pieces of it. But I think the overall, um, that the focus that that even happened, that there is a new nutrition facts label is important because when it comes down to it, and again, when I'm talking to individual clients or talking about the food standards, the nutrition facts label is really one of the only pieces of information that a consumer has at the point of purchase, and it's very valuable, and, it, and people really have that information to choose, like, this product is, you know, either better for me or, oh, wow, that's actually, it looks on the front, like we said, right. it looks on the front like it's a really great healthy product, you know, the person running on the front or something, <laughs> turn around so and it's farm. Yeah. sugar or something that, um, or the first ingredient is sugar, yeah. something outrageous, and, and thanks to the Nutrition Facts label, we have that information. Yeah. 
Um, given your past reporting on sugary beverages, um, are there interventions you have seen in government that sort of are used to help clarify what is and what what is and what is not healthy food choice for Margot? Well, so there's been a lot of policymaking around uh, sugary drinks specifically. Sugary drinks seem to be the kind of food item where there is the most consensus among the nutritional community and the public. We can see, you know, in, even in our study, uh, regular soda is sort of uh, all the way at the bottom of everyone's rankings. Yeah. And, you know, there is some science that shows that when you're getting a lot of calories through a sugary drink that you may, your brain may process them differently than sugar in a solid form. And so, there's, you know, there is some science that suggests that sugary drinks are particularly bad for you. And so, you know, we've seen a couple of U.S. cities and the country of Mexico um, pass taxes on soda or on sugary drinks to try to discourage mm-hmm. people from drinking so many of them. And it's kind of this fascinating uh, moment for someone like me right now because it's sort of happening in enough places that we're just starting to get science on whether or not these taxes are a good way to, A, get people to drink less sugary beverages, and B, to see whether there's any kind of downstream effect on obesity or diabetes, tooth decay, or other kinds of health effects that we care about. Yeah. Uh, There are are other kinds of policies, too, around drinks. I mean, you know, New York City actually kind of famously did a really kind of grotesque advertising campaign to try to uh, uh, sort of uh, let people know that, you know, this is uh, maybe a food product that is bad for you. And we see similar kinds of campaigns around the country where uh, there's kind of, you know, either public health advocates or municipal governments are basically advertising and telling people like maybe you should not drink so much soda <laughs> maybe lay um, off of that <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Ashley you're pretty familiar with that campaign right oh yeah <laughs> the pouring oh, yeah. on the fat campaign you worked on that <laughs> yeah, can you like describe that um that famous ad the pouring on the, the fat? yeah Ashley go for it that oh, <laughs> where the I, I'm it's been a while since I've seen it but basically ordering the sugary beverage and then drinking the fat Right. So, so it, yeah, <laughs> making the making the connection that this sugary beverage is definitely tied to fat in your body. But like globs, you know, globs of of visceral, like yeah, real. Yeah, very graphic. Yeah, very graphic. Graphic. did a similar and subways, graphic. Huh. And, yeah. yeah, copycats. Just kidding. <laughs> or was Hawaii first? <laughs> <laughs> Hawaii was not first. I'm like, we were first. Right. Yeah, it was It was gross. I, I mean, it was not what I really wanted to see in the subway every morning during my commute. But I think it was effective. People literally, like, shielded their eyes. <laughs> The role of government. So the third kind of policy that we're starting to see is a couple of U.S. cities are passing laws that require warning labels to appear on yeah. marketing materials for sugary drinks. So um, San Francisco is doing this, and also Baltimore uh, is considering a measure that would basically put something like what you see on a pack of cigarettes on a billboard for soda that would say, like, you know, this product, uh, you know, is is linked to obesity, diabetes, and tooth decay and may not be a good thing for you to consume a lot of. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that is kind of an untested strategy. Mm-hmm. It hasn't. I think San Francisco may just be starting to implement it now. The mm-hmm. uh, law was tied up in litigation for a while, and there are these other cities that are considering it. But um, there's some kind of laboratory research about that, where basically, like they, you know, bring, give people ten bucks and bring them into a lab and sh- and uh, show them the warning label and then ask them what they're going to buy. And so those kinds of studies seem to show that uh, the warning label seems to have some effect on what people say that they're going to purchase. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that suggests, like, it has the potential to work, but we don't have a lot of real-life evidence about what happens in the shopping environment. And 
you know, there have been similar warning labels that have been tried on other products, um, particularly on cigarettes and on alcohol. And the research seemed to suggest that, like, maybe they have, like, a little bit of impact, but that warning labels probably are not going to have a major effect on people's purchasing behavior, especially because, you know, and and I think this is where our survey is helpful. If you already have, you know, 90% of Americans saying that they know that this product is bad for them, you know, I think, I don't know that seeing a warning label on the, at the point of purchase or on a billboard is necessarily going to really change their shopping behavior. But, you know, we're going to have to see the, you know, the tax. Taxes, I think there's, there is more evidence now, uh, especially from Mexico, where the tax has been in effect for a couple of years. We can basically see evidence that when they tax sodas, soda costs more, and people, especially low-income people, buy less of it because it just becomes more expensive, and they switch to something that is not taxed. Ashley, what, do you, what are your thoughts on the uh, efficacy of, uh, or the potential efficacy of warning labels on sugary drinks? You know, I think I think Margo brings up several good points. The thing that I like the most about all of these policies around sugary beverages is that it continues to keep the conversation going. Yeah. Um, whether exactly the conversation going, and it continues to be in the media, and it earns a lot of free media time to just continually it's in the public eye. Questionable thoughts about sugary beverages, and I think a lot of negative press. And I think if anything, that in itself has been effective, or I hope that it has been effective. Right. Okay, so we have time for one final question. Um, Ashley, and I want to I talk a little bit about the role of industry. So I'm wondering, Ashley, what you, what you think industry can do to help consumers make more informed decisions. So I'm specifically thinking about Mars Food. I don't know if you um, read this, but they recently announced that they're going to include voluntary guidelines to suggest the frequency at which consumers should be enjoying their products. Um, so I think in the like public health community, we refer to these as like the stoplight. You know, green means yes, you can consume a lot, and yellow means like in moderation. Um, so they're gonna they're gonna roll this out. I'm wondering if you think this is going to be an effective intervention, and if these sort of like self regulations by industry, if, if there are any good ones out there that you would like to see more of. So I've I've not heard of this specific new initiative, but yes, this sounds very familiar. Um, I I don't think these are effective interventions, and I think when each company or each sector of the food industry starts to create their own labels and write their own stoplight system or their own front-of-package labeling, it just confuses the consumer even more, and it creates a very confusing landscape. And I think, you know, it, it seems to be that this is industry just trying to get one step ahead of regulation. And I think one thing that would be nice is if industry would comply with some of the, the very good policies from the FDA. And a lot of them are voluntary, um, although industry fights it. So I think any transparency on their part in trying to create one landscape for the consumer would be the best thing. Right. Um, although I, I kind of, part of me wants to say like, good job for you to start this kind of conversation because maybe it could be seen as a way for them to sort of lead the way uh, for others. But I do totally hear you on the kind of noise and confusion it could mm-hmm. pot- potentially create as well. Margo, what's next for you in terms of uh, issues you want to cover or topics um, that we could see you reporting on in the future? 
You know, I'm I, like I said, I'm really interested in this space where kind of food meets policy. So uh, one thing, I, I'm really interested in the new nutrition labels that we've talked about a little bit and sort of uh, I want to try to maybe do some more research into how people interpret them and, and whether they're going to change the kinds of behaviors uh, that, you know, when people are shopping. And I'm also interested in, in other kinds of incentive programs, so not just taxes, but there are a couple of pilot programs out there right now that basically uh, give people extra money to buy more fruits and vegetables. Yeah. And I'm, I'm interested in looking into how those are working and whether there are lessons on the kind of carrot side of the equation in mm-hmm. addition to the stick. Awesome. And Ashley, what's what's up for you? Um, can you tell us a little bit more about um, what we can expect to see um, for or the course that you're teaching, for instance? Sure, sure. Well, I'm excited to follow all of Margot's research. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm enjoying all of those topics sound great. I can't <laughs> wait to incorporate that into my practice. Yeah, and by, uh, by and the way... Then, and then, Oh, sorry, Ashley. Um, Margo, you have a you know a, re- a definite expert on the on the line in <laughs> Ashley. If you ever have <laughs> questions, somebody who's who's uh, done that work. So, <laughs> thanks, Jenna. Um, but then, yes, I look forward to being in the classroom and really talking about these very current events. And I, I'm so pleased that nutrition continues to be something that's more and more in the news and more and more sort of um, top of mind for people. That wasn't always the case. So that really helps to talk about current events and really sort of push push um, people to think more about public health, even for my individual clients, thinking about what is happening in the food environment and thinking about the food industry. I'm not sure how much people always think about that. So I'm always happy to kind of go macro and micro. Yeah. yeah, definitely. And then can you remind listeners um, where the, your website, if they want to find more information about your practice? Sure. So my practice is Thoughtful Food Nutrition, and it, it's just uh, thoughtfulfoodnutrition.com. There we go. All right. I, uh, we're going to have to leave it there today, but I want to thank both of my guests, Margot Sanger-Katz and Ashley Letterer, so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for having us. All right. I also want to thank um, our sponsors for your generous support. Our show is produced with help from Taylor Lenzette, and the show music is by the very talented Tim Archer. Um, Thank you also to our engineer, the one and only Pierre Bienemy. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. Like share, follow, post to us on Facebook, and be sure to find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. And talk to God.